This episode is brought to you by the Big Ears Festival, taking place from March 21st through 24th, 2024 in Knoxville, and featuring an incredible range of performers, from Herbie Hancock to Lori Anderson to Kurt Vile. BigEarsFestival.org. This episode is brought to you by Atomic Books. Atomic is an independent bookstore full of objects made of paper, vinyl, plastic, and various other actual materials at the edge of time. Specializing in literary comics, small press, art books, and great regional beer at 8 Bar in the back of the store. Come to 3620 Falls Road in Hamden or go to AtomicBooks.com. Atomic Books, literary finds for mutated minds. Uh, but I distinctly remember, as if it was, um, as if it were yesterday, uh, getting home. Uh, I remember it was a Saturday midday because um, that was the only day of the week uh, at that time where uh, we went to school in the morning and then the afternoon was free. So I know. Uh, so I remember coming back with the vinyl, uh, putting it on, putting putting it on the vinyl player in the living room, and when that song arrives. I just stopped in my track and I remember it was before lunch and I just, um, I, I think maybe the word ep epiphany is uh, maybe perhaps overused, but uh, I can swear that this is really what, what happened. I stopped in my tracks, I listened to the whole song and I really felt um, something deep had happened and I felt it was, it was musical, but also that it was... Uh, Uh, going much beyond music. It was like a really deep uh, emotional moment of understanding that I had uh, just experienced something that uh, would change my life. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. Barcelona-based French native Cécile Schott, who records as Colleen, has been making her often instrumental, sometimes ambient, and always compelling music since 2002. She'll be making her second Big Ears appearance at this year's festival, having previously played in 2017. Her new album, Le Jour et la Nuit du Riel, was released by Thrill Jockey on September 22, 2023. The 
first song Shot shows is being formatted for her was Roast Fish and Cornbread by Lee Scratch Perry. Okay, so the first song I chose is um, Lee Perry, uh, Roast Fish and Cornbread. And that was kind of an obvious choice um, because um, in hindsight, I, I realized that uh, I was extremely lucky to be able to hear this music when I was a tiny, tiny kid. I was only, according to my calculations, maybe uh, four or five and then uh, some years later on as well. So basically the story is that um, my parents, so I, I was born in 1976, uh, actually the, the best year of, uh, of dub music. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a coincidence or what, but uh, anyway, so I'm French and um, my parents weren't particularly into music. There was music at home, but I would definitely not say that they were, um, you know, like a music music addicts or, or anything. Uh, we usually had the um, popular French music of the time, uh, which, you know, wasn't that great, uh, I guess, is a, is a fair assessment for, for the stuff that was very popular. Uh, we had like international pop. The one thing that I was exposed to, which I think was really good, was um, Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh, but actually, I think this Lee Perry thing uh, probably came even earlier. So basically, um, uh, there were uh, cassette tapes on uh, motorways, uh, you know, like those typical um, motorway uh, stations uh, where uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, you had these stands and you could buy cassettes from there. And that's what my parents used to do. And uh, by some kind of miracle, they got one called Kings of Reggae. And that tape uh, contained um, like 90% uh, Lee Perry Upsetters production of the best period, uh, which is 1976-1978. And the tape started with um, uh, Roast Fish and Cornbread. And I'll, I'll just say uh, a couple of the other songs that were on there, uh, Scratch Walking, uh, Little Food Chant, uh, Throw Some Water In, uh, Return of the Super Ape, which is even more experimental. So uh, long story short, uh, I ended up listening to this um, when I was about four or five on uh, trips in the car and uh, later on in a camper van that we used to go on holiday in. And that was for several years. And I have distinct memories of listening to the music, enjoying it, also hearing that it was very weird compared to the rest of the stuff that, that we listened to. And, um, and I think in hindsight, now that I've become... Um, I mean, over the years, I became really, uh, I'm really into delay. I think that if there was one musical tool that I couldn't live with, it's definitely, definitely delay. And specifically, I'm into two delays. And one of them is the Space Echo uh, Roland RE201, which was also, uh, we have a guest now, uh, my cat, Sol. <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, the Space Echo, which I bought um, directly because of a, uh, 
of Lee Perry's use of that of that echo. So um, so yes, I guess I credit that uh, unlikely meeting with uh, Lee Perry's uh, best productions with um, instilling some kind of like early sense of uh, uh, the, you know the sense of the, the studio as a uh, the studio as a musical tool, basically, which is like really at the heart of my of my work. When do you think that you first kind of became conscious of that that effect of of, of hearing that? Much, much, yeah, much later on. And the the weird thing with dub is that it has kept uh, entering and then exiting my life. So I had another like dub period in my early twenties, and then another one. That started around 2014, so when I was 38. So it's a music that's that somehow has uh, come into my life in um, can you say bouts, I guess. Uh, and uh, I wasn't, I didn't really reflect upon this until uh, later on. And I thought because I, I found the tape again and I have it at home. And um, and yes, it's not something I really thought about because usually in interviews I used to say, and that, that will take us to my second choice, I used to say, oh, I became a musician because of the Beatles. But actually I realized that this seed was planted uh, much earlier and it's a specifically um, experimental seed. And again, as I was saying, it's it's uh, specifically linked to the, the studio as a space where you just um, experiment, which... I mean, to some extent, in my other choices, that's also true. But um, you know, who who better than Lee Perry to exemplify, you know, like the 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 completely open-ended approach of uh, using the studio as a tool and doing that in a completely iconoclastic way, you know? Right. Do you ha- recall having any um, any um, conversations with? other little kids or other, I mean, I, I guess I'm no. curious about what your your experience of it was when you were a child in terms of putting it into some kind of context. Uh, I would say none, none whatsoever, because really this was strictly um, uh, for the car. And so it stayed, you know, it kind of stayed inside the car. And uh, definitely if the, if I had any conversations with my friends when I was six or seven, definitely music wasn't part of that. Um, yeah, no, but I'm pretty sure like no one was listening to this. I I forgot to say also that my, my parents are super square. So it's not like they, you know, some I had some friends in high school where uh, I knew their parents were actually uh, smoking pot with them. And I think my, you know, my parents didn't even know what pot was. So it's definitely, as I said, that's the funny thing, completely unlikely. Just as an example, we also had a Bonnie M compilation in the car, you know, so that's... Uh, yeah, I don't think most Americans know what what uh, Boney M is, which is oh, maybe for okay. the best. But you uh, know that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if you had grown up in America, you might have uh, grown up listening to like and buying you know uh, truck stop tapes. You might have grown up listening to Merle Haggard and or maybe at best Al Green. Not that there's anything wrong with Merle oh. Haggard, and we'd be having a very different conversation. So. The second piece of music Shot chose as essential to forming her sensibilities was A Day in the Life by the Beatles. 
choice is uh, A Day in the Life by the Beatles. Um, that's the song that I really credit with um, making me want to be a musician and um, the Beatles, uh, I don't know, it's it's, uh, it's hard for me to, um, oh sorry, I, I can't find the words in English. Um, I can't uh, overstate the importance of, of the Beatles in um, my uh, music making path and uh, a little bit as with um, dub it's uh, it's a story that happens in various parts but they're like more concentrated in time and um, and so basically I uh, I first heard uh, a day in the life when I was about 13 the imagine documentary had been uh, released I didn't see that but uh, in school, I happened to have a friend who had the uh, vinyl of the soundtrack and she lent me that vinyl. I wasn't actually familiar very much with the, the Beatles, uh, but I distinctly remember as if it was um, as if it were yesterday uh, getting home. Uh, I remember it was a Saturday midday because um, that was the only day of the week uh, at that time where uh, we went to school in the morning and then the afternoon was free. So I know, uh, so I remember coming back with the vinyl, uh, putting it on, putting, putting it on the vinyl player in the living room. And when that song arrived, I just stopped in my track. And I remember it was before lunch and I just... Um, I, I think maybe the word ep epiphany is uh, maybe perhaps overused, but uh, I can swear that this is really what, what happened. I stopped in my tracks, I listened to the whole song, and I really felt um, something deep had happened. And I felt it was, it was musical, but also that it was uh, uh, going much beyond music. It was like a really deep uh emotional moment of understanding that I had uh, just experienced something that uh, would change my life. I don't think obviously I'd, I wasn't aware that I would become a musician, but um, it, it was definitely something special because I'd heard music before that I had really liked. Um, I did really like uh, listening to pop songs on the radio and stuff like that, but this was different. And uh, retrospectively, I think that song is um, the first song that made me understand intuitively that um, music is a constructed artifact. So I think one of the really interesting thing about the music that you hear as a child and as a teenager, if you grow up in a non-musical family and you don't have a musical practice, which was my case, uh, I, I didn't have any, is that you hear the music as a kind of whole where... Um, the bits that emerge are basically, you know, the melody, the lyrics. And I guess that um, most people hear music that way because uh, there's no, you know, there's no particular ability to analyze art forms, you know, unless you're actually really well versed in how they're made. And I think that song, because it's, um, 
it's so obviously a constructed song um, that somehow I think this, uh, I, I could feel that intuitively. So I think there was an emotional level where I was just um, uh, really moved by by the sounds of the, the guitar, the, the, the piano, the uh, the, the spare drumming, um, the, the voice. Uh, obviously, I, had, I couldn't understand the lyrics at the, at the time. Uh, but I think, um, yeah, it's, it's such, it's so obviously a song that sticks out of the ordinary. And to this day, you, there's no other song in the canon of, of music, uh, even including all of music's uh, history, you know, like all of the genres. There's no other song like that one. So, um, so yes. And so that was the start of my love story with the Beatles. And um, it doesn't stop there. Uh, I made a second friend in that school. And she was the first person who showed me uh, real instruments. And again, it was um, a kind of context where everything was very emotional because uh, her father had uh, committed suicide. Uh, so we went to her house and in the basement, uh, there was an organ that had belonged to her father. Uh, she wasn't supposed to touch it and switch it on, but she did it uh, for me. And so I remember... Um, I don't remember the sounds, but I just remember this like strange moment of, I mean, so again, I was, uh, I was 13. That was shortly after um, listening to uh, A Day in the Life. Um, I remember just getting a, um, a weird sense of how music and instruments could be connected to a person. And there was something almost uh, uh, ghost-like, you know, about that organ sitting unused silence in in that basement and the the secretive way that she had to to switch it on and, and show it to me. Um, and she also had an acoustic guitar. So that was also the first time I strummed an acoustic guitar. And uh, and again, I didn't have access to instruments as a, as a teenager. So that was also um, something very striking for me. She lent me the uh, blue and red uh, compilations on tape. I uh, copied that. Uh, I basically I spent all my teenage years uh, copying stuff that people would give me. Um, and I listened to these on repeat. That's when I became really acquainted with the Beatles. And again, the way this ties in with my musical production is I remember, for instance, um, listening to the music and hearing the stereo effects or being really conscious, of, hey, on that song, the, the voice for the entire duration of the song or maybe 80% is on the left side. You know, why is that? You know, uh, it's the sort of stuff where uh, I didn't know what production was, but here it was, you know, staring me in the ears, uh, if I might say that, you know. Um, and I think also in the Beatles, oh, sorry, in the Beatles um, music, there's also a lot of expressive space uh, between the instruments. If we go back to A Day in the Life, um, the way that the drumming happens not all of the time. That's something that's that's really striking. There's a lot of room to breathe. And on the other end of the spectrum within the song, there's the crazy crescendo with the uh, multi-taped orchestra. Um, so yes. And uh, finally, uh, what is the final thing? Oh yeah. And so finally, the way the Beatles are directly tied to my um, vocation as a musician was that by then, I still hadn't heard people playing uh, a live show. I come from a very small town. It was uh, like really a, 
a cultural desert. Um, in many ways, it still is. And um, my parents, on with our camper van, uh, we went to Norway. And on the way back, we stopped in Copenhagen, where there were some buskers. Uh, being from a small town, I, I had never seen people busking. And there were two guys with uh, two acoustic guitars uh, doing Beatles uh, cover versions. I begged my parents to stay. They said no. <laughs> that, there was major drama. We just went back to the camper van. But um, that's when I thought, I want to play guitar too. And I want to be able to do that. So a couple of weeks later, I mustered my courage uh, because I was convinced my parents would uh, say no. But I said, I would really like to play uh, the guitar. Could you buy me a guitar? And uh, and they said yes. And that's how I started uh, playing guitar. So <laughs> so definitely like the, the Beatles have, um, you know, my music doesn't sound anything like the Beatles, but definitely, um, yeah, it's it's a. Uh, it's it's really it really happened with them in in so many ways. Um, I've said this on the show before, but um, you know, I think that music in some ways is the closest thing to actual magic that exists. It's just this, you know, people mm. people uh, do these mysterious things, and then things that uh, feel like they can change the world happen. Um, um, mm. Sorry, that's not really a question. Um, do you still have um, maybe it's not that intense? Do you still have a relationship with that song and with the Beatles music that that sort of echoes that relationship you once had? I'd, yeah, I do. Uh, I wouldn't say I listen to them very often, but if I happen, the best thing is if I happen to hear a Beatles song by chance. And I'm reminded of why, you know, uh, why I love them so much. So, um, and also I think it's the type of music, uh, like all the best music, I think you can really listen to it on various levels. So uh, you could not be into music production. You could just be like a, a regular Joe or Jane, I don't know what's the expression, and just like thoroughly have the time of your life listening to the Beatles. And obviously that's the case for uh, millions of people. Uh, but then, as a musician, um, you can also listen to them on a much more analytical level. But you don't even need to choose between one thing and the other. It's like all the layers are present. It just depends which, you know, on that day, what you want to tap into. But I think that's what really makes it incredibly rich. And I guess uh, it's... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe people who are not into the Beatles will think I'm exaggerating. But I don't think there's quite another band... Um, like them and also I think the thing that strikes me now is uh, the music is now more than 50 years old and it still sounds so damn fresh you know it's uh, I, I think uh, it is from its time but the fact for instance that uh, some of the some of the songs just stand as like forever islands on their own you know like I said um, the, A Day in the Life has no other single parallel that I can think of you know uh, there are other uh, out there songs but but like that but there isn't one like that so um, so yes
Beyond Video is a volunteer-run video library in Baltimore. Basically, an old-school video rental store reimagined with a 21st century nonprofit twist. Beyond offers nearly 30,000 titles from every region, era, and genre of cinema on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS, a collection created by crowdsourcing disc donations from movie lovers like you. With no rental fees or late fees, members get unlimited rentals from their collection for a small monthly donation. Find out more about joining or donating at beyondvideo.org. Or, when in Baltimore, visit Beyond at 2545 North Howard Street. And for a limited time, new members who mention Essential Tremors when signing up will get an extra month for free. This episode is brought to you by Royal Books, located at 32 West 25th Street in Charles Village, Baltimore. Established in 1996, Royal Books is a seller of rare books and paper, specializing in literature, cinema, music, and the arts. From Cassavetes to Ida Lupino, from New Wave to Warhol, you'll find an ever-expanding selection of first editions, original film scripts, vintage photographs, posters, and 20th century Americana. Visit us online at royalbooks.com or visit our store on any weekday between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. The final piece of music Shot shows is being formatted for her was 24-track loop by This Heat. So third song, oh, I had a really tough time um, choosing a third song. I think the Lee Perry and uh, Beatles selections were uh, were obvious. And I'm kind of, uh, I've decided to keep a chronological order. Um, there are other things I could have uh, chosen from uh, after those teenage years, but definitely I think the, the Lee Perry one corresponds to my early childhood, uh, the Beatles to my teenage years. And so the next one is definitely the... Um, late teenage years uh, entrance into young adulthood and it's a 24 track loop by uh, this heat uh, i think the name of the song itself indicates that we are um, far away from uh, pop territory um, and uh, again there's like a whole context uh, life context i would say in which this happens um, it's actually um, it's, it's not a happy context, but I think I'm, I'm, I want to talk about it a little bit. Um, so uh, I discovered this music uh, when I was 19, in 1995 to be precise. Uh, I had left uh, my hometown to start university. I uh, started to uh, study English 
And in Dijon, in Burgundy, it's a kind of like average sized town. And um, as someone who was from a small town, I was like really desperate to get out as soon as I could. And so that was extremely exciting. I had started a band um, in high school with some friends and the band split uh, after about a year. Um, by then, I had found out that I wasn't made for uh, making music in bands and I had bought a four-track tape recorder. So this is important in the in the context of, you know, like the shock that I had when I heard this song. So that's the musical context. I'm basically trying to um, get out of a kind of like a noisy rock pop um, bubble that I was kind of into. So my, my friends from the band, uh, we listened to The Pixies, Sonic Youth, uh, My Bloody Valentine, all that stuff. And that was more or less the music we were making. Uh, but when I decided to uh, not play in a band and make music on my own, it was obvious that um, I was going to have to do things in a, in a different way. And uh, that's when I really started to um, open myself to experimentations with tapes and just like grabbing whatever I had under my hand, mostly things that weren't even instruments. Um, because I, I, as a student, I barely had any money. So, um, so yes. And uh, in terms of the uh, more personal context, I, I, I want to mention it because I, I always think and I always say that music doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's always, uh, we're always just people who happen to be making music. And so um, basically a very important thing that happened then was that my only brother committed suicide. So he committed suicide in December 1994. Uh, one of the musical memories I have at that time, and i that's the song that nearly made uh, the, the cut instead of uh, This Heat, is uh, listening to Lowe's first album, I Could Live in Hope, and specifically uh, the song Words. Uh, I, I know you've had Alan on the show, and I have so much admiration for them. And that song um, also stopped me in my tracks, and that album remains a, a personal favorite. And it's uh, I heard it the month that my that my brother committed suicide. But so this is to give a context in which uh, the following months are just. Um, some of the weirdest of my life. I'm kind of grappling with the end of my band, with what's happened in my family. And by the summer, uh, the group, the band has ended. Uh, I'm trying to do my four tape experiments and I meet these uh, guys uh, in Dijon. Uh, they were a trio. They were called the Ultra Milkmaids. Um, they were kind of like a cult underground band they were actually younger than me so we're talking like really young guys they were only 18 I was 19 and they were the first people I met who made music with a computer so that was at the time I couldn't even switch on a computer we're talking uh, 1995 obviously all of this is also pre-internet um, you know pre-easy software uh, pre-looping pedals, pre, <laughs> pre a lot of things. And so these guys are uh, making music with computers. They're also really gifted multi-instrumentalists and they were way ahead of me in terms of their uh, uh, musical knowledge. Knowledge, sorry. And so one day uh, they gave me a tape of the first This Heat album called This Heat. And that was uh, literally a slap in the face. And um, the first song actually on that album uh, sounds actually, it just sounds like a slap in the face, like literally the um, the guitar and the drums are so 
are so tight and abrasive. And um, I listened to the whole album and I thought, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God, what have I just heard? And also, uh, in a more depressing way, I, I realized that I was so far behind with my own experiments. So it's a musical selection that exemplifies a, a weird phenomenon that can happen to you as a musician. Uh, sometimes you hear something and um, it energizes you and it doesn't deplete you of your confidence. But other times, uh, if you know you're kind of, um, you're looking for something, but you're not there yet. Uh, it could be technical. Uh, that was certainly the case for me. It could also be just that you haven't matured enough. You haven't you haven't gotten yet to the stage where you're the person who can make the music you're imagining, if that makes sense. So when you're 19, um, obviously that's that's just very young. So I think in my head, um, I could imagine something, but I didn't have the tools for that. And listening to this heat, uh, that, that particular album was recorded between 1976 and 78. Uh, I'm from 76, so also the first thing I thought was, Oh, Cecile, <laughs> these guys were doing this when you were, uh, you know, <laughs> when you were in diapers. So that was also another shock. And it took me several years, actually, to kind of digest uh, all this. And to um, I stopped making music, actually, shortly after that, for about two years. Um, I had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to do something, but I just wasn't ready. And it was, uh, I went to live in England. That, that was where also I got some more exposure to more uh, interesting experimental music. And finally, um, things happened for me when I came back to Paris, which was in uh, 1999. So just four years later. But uh, by then, things had changed a lot. I think in the um, the music world, I had learned to switch on a computer, which proved to be a, a vital change in my life. Uh, I had learned to switch on a computer, actually, because I needed to write my uh, master's thesis for my uh, English master's. Uh, but then a friend gave me some sampling software, and that was uh, my step back into making music via sampling and that led uh, to making my first album, which was uh, sample-based. Um, but yes, so I chose 24-track um, loop um, because in a way, again, it's one of those tracks that stands completely out of time, uh, even with the massive amount of um, experimental, rhythmical, um, electronic music that's been made since then and you know there's been a ton i think that track has something that is completely unique um in terms of my own development i think it was one of those uh songs where um you can still identify it as a song you know it's not that experimental that you think oh is this like a 40 it's not a 40 minute drone uh you know it's like five minutes something uh, there's enough groove to it that you would, you know, like maybe start bobbing along. Um, and there's a repetitive structure. Obviously, that was, uh, you know, um, um, cyclical music is like a huge influence on what I do. And just the, the amount of work in terms of, uh, of texture, um, the experimentation with the studio, again, I think we, we go back to that. All those three songs are just... Uh, 
masterful examples of what you can do um, with, uh, well, in this case, with tape. Unfortunately, I, I don't work with tape. Um, but yes, it's like um, this perfect example of a completely open-ended approach to music, but which somehow, I don't know if I should say that it doesn't forget the listener. I guess uh, it would be legitimate to forget the listener. Like you can make music just for yourself. That's That shouldn't be the point. But um, there is something, uh, I think... Um, very generous, very energetic about the the output of this band, and I think that makes them uh, very, very unique. It was uh, fascinating to see this pop up on your list, uh, and I hadn't heard it in a while, and and went back and listened to it in preparation for this, and it was like, of course, you know, listening to it again, it was like not that it sounds um, like your music, but it just feels like there's such an obvious um, kinship in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. Um, Thank you. And also listening to it again, it's like that's more than 40 years old and it sounds like it could have come out yesterday. Oh, yeah. It's, um, you know, I I, I don't think that they are, um, I mean, this heat is not, it it doesn't exist anymore. They were playing for a while as this is not this heat. Yeah. And I think that, I think that they're maybe done with that also, but it's sort of like, it's a it's a shame because um, clearly they um, were so far ahead of their time that maybe they are still <laughs> ahead of our current time too. Mm. Well, uh, uh, yes. So um, I was lucky enough to meet uh, Charles Hayward in two thousand five at the ICA, which is a concert venue in London. I had met him very very briefly a year earlier at a. A festival where I was attending as an audience member he was there and someone had passed him my album my first album and he had really liked it and I was like oh you know this is such an honor and uh, and I saw him play a couple of times he's like such a vibrant uh, drummer and um, and Charles Bullen uh, like he's aware that I'm a big uh, this heat fan and I've just seen he's done some uh, uh, Life Tones concerts recently of his uh, other project, um, you know, post uh, post this heat. So uh, I think you know definitely they're still you know alive and well. Well, I mean two of them at least, and um, and that's I think that's that's great. It's always uh, very reassuring for me to see uh, older musicians who are um, you know who are still um, uh, performing basically and uh, you know performing well. Maybe you should uh, invite them to collaborate. <laughs> I, I'm so I'm the, the thing is I don't collaborate, so I know maybe this makes me sound weird, but I really have a thing about working on my own actually. And uh, funny, well, funnily enough, though I didn't choose uh, music made by people on their own. So, uh, so well, I guess that's good. <laughs> This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.